I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as we continue our series in this book of 1 Corinthians. Last week we, we talked about sexual immorality and, and how sexual immorality that had invaded the culture had invaded the church. And now we want to move from talking about sexual immorality to marriage and singleness and what God says about these two subjects and sex with, within these two subjects. You know, I've discovered that a lot of people have a lot of different ideas, a lot of different opinions when it comes to marriage. Cher, who was the singer, said the trouble with some women is they get all excited about nothing and then they marry him. And um, I guess that's one opinion. Groucho Marx, who was a comedian, said this. He said, I was married by a judge. I should have asked for a jury. I hope you don't feel that way. One lady once said, my husband and I married for better or worse. He couldn't have done better, and I couldn't have done worse. <laughs> Ladies, I hope you don't feel that way about your husband. Rodney Dangerfield <laughs> said this. He said, my wife and I were happy for 20 years. Then we met. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard that phrase, happily ever after. It comes oftentimes at the end of a, of a fairy tale. Snow White meets her Prince Charming. And after what seems like overcoming insurmountable odds, impossible odds, they finally get to that point where they are able to live happily ever after. And there are a lot of people that look at life that way. They think that if they're going to live happily ever after, they've got to find the right husband or the right wife. They've got to live in the right neighborhood. They've got to have the right number of kids. And their kids have to behave the right way. And on and on we go. It takes that to live happily ever after. There are other people that believe if they are going to be happily ever after, they've got to get rid of the wrong spouse. But I want you to know that both of those ideas are wrong today. The truth is, I've met a lot of single people who want to be married. And I've let, met a lot of married people who want to be single. And the reason is, they are looking to the wrong thing to find happiness in life. You see, what you need to understand this morning is this. Our ultimate happiness isn't dependent upon our relationship with a spouse, but rather our submission to a Savior. Let me say that again because you don't want to miss this. Our ultimate happiness in life is not dependent upon a relationship that we have with a spouse. Our ultimate happiness in life is dependent upon submission to the Savior. The truth is, you can live happily ever after regardless of whether you're married or whether you're single. You can live happily ever after regardless of whether you are in a good marriage or a not-so-good marriage. Now, if you've had the opportunity to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you've discovered that it is a, a, a rather long passage and it covers a, a lot of material because the Corinthians were confused when it came to this issue that we call marriage. There were some that were teaching that if you wanted to be a, a Christian, at least if you wanted to be a good Christian, 
you needed to get married. There were others who were teaching that if you really wanted to serve God, if you really wanted to live a life that was pleasing to Him, you needed to be single and you needed to be celibate. Because of that, there were some people who were getting married that didn't need to get married. And there were other people who were getting divorced because they were confused about this whole issue. So, so Paul writes to clear up their confusion. And the primary truth, the primary truth that he teaches in this passage is this. Whether you're single or married, you need to be content. And, and let me say that again. Whether you are single or married, you need to get to that point in your life where you can be content and you make the most of your life. And so I want to talk this morning to, to those of us who are married and those of you who are single. I want to talk to those who are single and, and want to be married. And I want to talk to those who are married and want to be single. Because the truth is, God has a word for each of us. The married and the single, the single who want to be married and the married that want to be single. He gives us a word in this passage. Now first, I want to talk about those who are married. And, and as we look at this passage, Paul gives us three truths. He says, if you're married, you need to understand three truths. And the first truth is this. He said, I want you to understand the purpose of marriage. I want you to understand the reason for marriage in the first place. And understand, in this passage, Paul deals with a couple of reasons. But, but to be honest, there are multiple reasons that God's Word gives us for a person to be married. Now, the first one may surprise you. The first reason for marriage is proclamation. Let me say that again. The first reason for marriage is proclamation to proclaim God's love for the world. That's the first reason that a couple gets married. Now, we discover this in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. In some verses in Ephesians chapter 5, we discover some of the, the, the most wonderful, most beautiful principles about married life in God's Word. And in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says this. He said, Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church. And then he said, wives are to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord in everything. And then he tells us a little bit more and he, he quotes the passage from Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 where it says a man will leave his mother and father, be united to his wife, and, and the two will become one flesh. And then as he is ending this passage, he says something that is profound, that we oftentimes miss. He says, I am speaking of Christ and the church. In other words, what Paul is saying is that a marriage that is built upon these principles is a picture of Christ's love for his church. In other words, when a husband is sacrificially loving his wife the way that Christ loves the church and gives himself up, dies for it. We are showing the world Christ's love 
for them. And he tells us that, that when a woman graciously submits to the leadership of her husband, she is not saying that she is a doormat. She is not saying that she is a second-class citizen. No, what she is saying is, I am choosing to live my life as a picture of how we are to live our lives in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so listen, listen very carefully for each and every one of us who were Christians and who were married. Our marriages are to be a picture of Christ's love for his church. We as husbands are to love our wives in such a way that it paints a picture for the world to see of how Jesus sacrificially gave himself up for the world. And wives are to graciously submit to their husbands in such a way that when someone looks at this marriage and it it seems so out of the ordinary in our world, it lets the world know that that's how we are to live our lives in submission to Jesus Christ. So the first purpose of marriage is proclamation. Now, the second purpose of marriage is is one that's obvious, and that is procreation. And and God talks about that in Genesis chapter 1. To the first husband, to the first wife, God said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth. In other words, God said, had kids, kids, have lots of kids. It's a good thing to, to have kids. And there are some people today that say, well, the world is populated. We don't need to have kids anymore. And I want you to know, I believe it's still a good thing for godly people to have kids and have lots of kids. I mean, have as many kids as you can maintain sanity parenting. Now, if for you that's one, then okay. If for you that's five, that's okay. I mean, you know where your sanity level is. I mean, for Sherry and I, when we got to four, um, we both realized, you know, we're going to lose our minds if we keep on. And so we realized that four was that good, godly, holy number for us. You see, it's a good thing to have children and raise them to reflect his glory and honor his name. That's a, a good thing. So procreation. The third reason for marriage is this, is partnership. Now, we often miss this in the creation story, but the Bible teaches that God made man before he made woman. And he gave man a task to perform before woman was ever created. And man was working in the garden. Man was accomplishing the task all by himself. When God says in Genesis 2, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. God had said before this, in everything he had done, it's good. It's good. It's good. But as man was all alone, God said it's not good. And God said, I'm going to make a helper that's suitable for him. I'm going to make a partner for him. You see, ladies, you don't have to say it. God said it before you. Your husband needs you. He does. I mean, his elevator doesn't go to the top floor. God knew that. That's why God made you. God made you to help that elevator make it to the top floor. You're his completer. You are given to your husband to complement your husband. 
That's what the Bible says. You are a helper suitable for him. And we go through life as one partnering together. So the purpose of marriage is is proclamation of who Jesus is. It's procreation. It's partnership. But third, and men, you're going to love this. The fourth or the fourth reason for marriage is pleasure. Now, we're not going to talk about this a lot this morning, but a lot of churches never address this issue. They never talk about sex and how God intended sex for our pleasure. Did you know that? Did you know that it's okay to say that in church? Well, we need to say it in church, amen? Because the world is going to give us a skewed view of sex. And all too often there are churches today that seem to lead us to believe that sex is something that we endure, not something we enjoy. But God gave us sex to be enjoyed. You need to understand that God created sex to be gratifying and to be satisfying. God created it to be enjoyable. I mean, God could have made you and I reproduce in a variety of ways. We could have rubbed noses. We could have, we could eat ice cream sundaes together. We could have done a variety of things. And God said, whenever you do this, you're going to get pregnant. God could have done that, couldn't he? But God chose through the intimate act of sex for our, our species to reproduce. And, and God made our bodies in such a way. And I don't want to embarrass you if you've never gone through any kind of sex head. But, but God made our bodies in such a way that, that sex is a... Pretty cool thing for those who are married. Do I have a witness? (laughs) It was crazy that a man is the one who said amen. But God created sex to be enjoyable. God created sex to be satisfying. God wants sex to be fun. He made it that way. The Bible speaks to that. In Proverbs, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said this in chapter 5. He's speaking of the sexual relationship. And understand, I've left some of the the, the verses and phrases out because I didn't want to embarrass some of you. But, But this is what Solomon says. He says, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Some of you are going to... Did the pastor say breast in church? <laughs> he, he read it out of the Bible. Don't get mad at me. God said it. And some of you men are sitting beside women who are getting upset that I said that. And you're going, amen, pastor. Not going to say that out loud, though. I'll get kicked. God says sex is to be a pleasurable thing. Is it getting hot in here? Now, if you think that passage was hot... Read Song of Solomon in a newer translation. It'll cause you to blush. It'll turn you red. It really will. I mean, some people say the book of Song of Solomon is a, is a, a book that was written to describe God's love for us. And, and I guess you could get that out of it. But understand, the Song of Solomon was a series of erotic love letters 
that Solomon and his lover sent to one another. And let me tell you, they are erotic. They really are. You're going to read it and you're going to go, does it say that in the Bible? It's going to embarrass some of you. Some of you are going to say, does the Bible really say that? And I'll go, hey, the Bible says a lot of cool things. You ought to read it sometime. It may spice up your love life. You see, God intended marriage to be pleasurable for us. So the purpose of marriage is pleasure. Purpose of marriage is partnership, procreation, proclamation. But let me give you a fifth thing that that Paul really deals with in this passage, and that is God intended marriage for our purity. That's what it says in verses 2 and 9. You see, sex within the bounds of marriage is a safeguard against sexual immorality outside of marriage. Let me say that again. Sex within the bounds of marriage is a safeguard against sexual immorality outside of marriage. Listen to what it says in verse 2. But since there is so much immorality, and the word there is porneos, sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. Verse 9. But if they cannot control themselves, it's speaking of singles, If they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passions. Now listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. I'm not saying that a good sex life will guarantee sexual purity within your marriage. But I am saying that it will definitely help. I want you to look at me. I'm not telling you that a good sex life will guarantee sexual purity in your marriage. But I do want you to know that it will definitely help. Paul doesn't say that sex is the only reason to get married. Paul doesn't say sex is the best reason to get married. But Paul does say that it is a legitimate reason to get married. You see, Paul tells us, and I want you to get this, sex is not only a physical act, it is a spiritual duty. Don't miss this. When you marry, sex not only becomes a physical act, sex becomes a spiritual duty. Listen to what Paul says, beginning in verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Did you get that? You see, the Bible teaches that sex is not just a physical act. When we get married, sex becomes a spiritual duty. Paul says that a husband has a duty, literally a debt to meet the needs of his wife. And a wife has a duty, literally a debt to meet the needs of her husband. And let me be clear, this is not talking about a financial need. This is not talking about the need for clean clothes and good food. This is talking about the sexual debt. You cannot read anything else into this passage. And if you want to say that Paul was speaking to something else, you are being deceived scripturally. 
Paul is talking about the sexual duty that we have toward our spouse when we get married. I've got an obligation to fulfill. And the tense in verse 3 lets me know that this isn't a duty that I fulfill and it's over. No, this is a continuing duty. As long as I am married, I have the obligation to meet the sexual needs of my spouse. Now listen very carefully. Sex is not a reward for good behavior. Sex is not punishment for bad behavior, withheld because of bad behavior. Sex is a right within marriage. Sex is not a reward when your spouse does good. Sex is not punishment that you withhold when your spouse does bad. Sex is a right that your spouse has. And hear me. I am not going to go as far to say that if you withhold sex, you are sinning. But I will say that if you are withholding sex from your spouse, you are going against God's clear word. And I guess you could say that's sinning. Now, notice what he says here. He says that in sex, you were to be selfless not selfish. Paul says the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but to her husband. And the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but to his wife. In other words, what that says is that when a husband and wife come together in that sexual time of intimacy, it's not a selfish time where they're looking to get their own needs met. No. Spiritually, sex is a time when I and meeting the needs of my spouse. And can I be honest with y'all? If I am seeking to meet the need of my spouse in that intimate relationship, I'm pretty certain my needs will be met. And so the Bible tells us that sex is selfless, not selfish. And then Paul says something. He says that we can't deprive each other from this obligation except for a limited time by mutual consent. And then it is only because of a spiritual reason. We're coming together to pray. Wow. I, I didn't say that. Paul said that. Some sex depraved man didn't say that. The man that God used to plant churches all over the world in the first century said that. He said that the only time that, that you don't come together in sex is when you mutually agree. And, and then it is only for a short period of time as both of you are seeking God in prayer. Wow. So the purpose of sex. Let's move on. This next thing we see is the permanence of marriage. The purpose of marriage, not purpose of sex. Sex on my mind now. A lot of you men say it's on my mind too, so... The purpose of marriage. Second, the permanence of marriage. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, Paul says, To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. You see, God's word is clear. Marriage is meant to be a permanent relationship. Jesus taught this. And Jesus' disciples understood this. As a matter of fact, in, in Matthew 19, 
Jesus was teaching on marriage. And, and in that teaching, he said the only reason that you can ever dissolve a marriage is because continued sexual unfaithfulness. And the disciples, after hearing that, said this, wow, whoa, it may be better not to get married. You see, they realized that marriage was a permanent institution. When we get married, we're getting married for better or for worse. We're getting married for richer or for poorer. We're getting married in sickness and in health. We're getting married when we're thin or when our weight begins to redistribute itself. We get married for good or for bad. Now, the Bible tells us that, that that's God's will. Now, now, inevitably, someone will ask, well, is there ever a time when divorce is acceptable? And, and let me say that's the right way to frame the question. Acceptable. Because understand, divorce is never God's perfect will. There are times that it's a part of God's permissive will. I believe God's perfect will is shown in the life of Hosea, who was a prophet. You can read his story in the Old Testament. Hosea was a prophet who married his sweetheart, Gomer, and they had two kids, and, and something happened to Gomer. I don't know. She flipped out, and she went out, and she began to live as a prostitute. But Hosea stuck with Hosea, Gomer. He, he, he refused to leave her. And eventually after she had so depraved herself and so abused her body that she was being sold on the auction block, Hosea went and bought her back. And he didn't bring her back home as a slave. He brought her back home as his wife. And God was using the story of Hosea to show us his love for us, but to also show us the kind of love, the kind of love that we can have to other people. When Sherry and I got married, I've shared this with you before. One of the first things that, that we did is we went to the, the dictionary in our home and we took a marker and we marked out the word divorce. And I told her, I'll never divorce you under any circumstances. Whatever you do, however you let me down, however you hurt me, I'll never divorce you. You say, how can you make that commitment? The only way you can ever make a commitment is to make it. And I knew that I was making that commitment. And this is what that meant. My wife becomes unfaithful. I made the commitment. I'm sticking with her. My wife ruins my reputation. I'm making the commitment that I'm sticking with her. I can't force her to stick with me. But what I can do is say, I'm sticking with her. And, and I, made that, I made that commitment. And I got to tell you, I'm married to the most wonderful woman in the world. But, but marriage is tough. It's tough to keep that kind of commitment. And, and praise God, we've never had those horrific things to happen in our life. And some of you have. And I'm not telling you your story needs to be my story. I'm not telling you that. I'm just telling you that I made a commitment from the get-go that I want to love my wife like Hosea loved Gomer. Unconditionally. Regardless of what she does. And my prayer is that she would love me. In the same way. Now let's get back. Are there exceptions? The Bible says there are two. The first one is, is marital unfaithfulness. Sexual unfaithfulness. 
And the word that it uses in Matthew 19 means a continued act. It's, it's not talking about a spouse who messes up, who blows it, who has an affair, who cheats, who does something that is wrong, that is heinous, that is hurtful, but they're overcome with shame. They're overcome with guilt. They're overcome with remorse. They want to make it right. They want to repent. It's not talking about this person. It's talking about the person who, as a habit, is unfaithful to you. And the Bible says that when you're married to someone like that, you can leave. But then there's another exception, and the other exception is abandonment by an unbeliever. And let me say that again, abandonment by an unbeliever. Because, you see, the implication is a believer, look at me, a believer would never abandon. Listen to what what Paul says, taking it up in verse 11. But if she does, and you've got to go back to verse 10. He says a wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I not the Lord. Now before we go any further, let me tell you what Paul's saying here. Because some will say now Paul's given us his opinion. And so it doesn't carry as much weight as what he's previously said. And that's not what... Is said here. This is God's word, period. What Paul is saying is, what I'm about to talk to you about, Jesus didn't talk about. We have no record of Jesus speaking on this. But now I'm going to speak to you on this. And Paul was speaking under the authority of the Holy Spirit. And so what he was saying to us is just as authoritative as if Jesus was standing before us saying it to us. And so when Paul says, it's not the Lord, but I who is speaking to you, he's just simply telling us, I'm not quoting the Lord directly when I say this. And then he says, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, Paul begins by saying that a believer who divorces for anything other than the reason he's already given sexual unfaithfulness either has to reconcile to their spouse or remain unmarried. Did you hear that? If a believer leaves their spouse for any reason other than sexual unfaithfulness, then they are either to reconcile with their spouse or remain unmarried. God's word is clear here. Now you say, Rocky, that's harsh. No, it's not harsh. It's showing us how God views marriage. God views marriage as a permanent institution. And he's telling us we need to fight for our marriages. We need to work at our marriages. And then he addresses a problem that was somewhat unique to the first century church. Not just unique, but somewhat unique. Because as the gospel began to be shared in Corinth, there were people who were coming to faith in Christ who were married. But oftentimes their spouses weren't coming to faith in Christ. 
And so you had a husband who gave his life to Christ, but his wife didn't give her life to Christ. Or you had a wife who gave her life to Christ, but the husband didn't. And, and, and they were confused about this. And they were wondering, okay, now that I've given my life to Christ, should I leave my unbelieving spouse? Because they don't believe like I believe. And Paul was saying, absolutely not. If you're married to an unbeliever and, and they're willing to live with you, then continue to live with them because your godly influence will have an influence on their life and the life of your children. But if you leave them, you have lost that influence. And so if you're married to an unbeliever and they're willing to live with you, then continue to live with them. Now hear me. Look at me. This isn't speaking to a Christian who marries a non-Christian. Because 2 Corinthians 6 is very clear on this. We're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And when we as believers marry unbelievers, we are setting ourselves up. Does God have mercy and grace in those relationships at times? Absolutely. And praise God for it. There are times that God steps in and intervenes and we see a spouse come to faith in Christ. There are times that, that we have a good marriage even though we're unequally yoked. But the fact of the matter is that when you have a couple and the husband and the wife are serving two separate different gods, it's very difficult. And so Paul says you shouldn't marry an unbeliever. And so this isn't talking about a believer who decides to marry an unbeliever because they fall in love. He's already said that's wrong. He's talking about two people who are unbelievers. One gets saved, one isn't saved. And, and the one who isn't saved says, I'm, I still love you. I'm ready to live with you. The believer should go, great, praise God. And they should begin to live like Jesus before their spouse. But then he says, but if the unbeliever wants to leave... Let them leave. In other words, if I come to faith in Christ and my spouse doesn't, and my spouse says, you know, when I got married, I didn't marry one of these Christian fanatics. I don't want to be married to you anymore. Paul says, let them leave. You don't even need to fight for it. And you go, why is Paul saying that? Because Paul recognizes that if you're trying to save something that someone else doesn't want to save, most often you're fighting a lost cause. You're fighting a lost cause. You, you see, Paul says this. He says, how do you know whether you're going to save your husband? Or how do you know whether you're going to save your wife? Because what we often say, if we're the believer married to a non-believer and they don't want to be married to us anymore, we try to stick with it. We try to hang in there because it's our belief that somehow, some way, we may be able to reach them. And what Paul's saying there is you don't know that. If they don't want to be with you anymore, you're free. You're free. You're released from your marital obligation. So you see, those are the only two exceptions in God's word of getting out of our marriage. Sexual unfaithfulness. And an unbeliever who says to a believer, I no longer want to be married to you. Now, some of you are saying, well, I've been divorced and, and I'm already remarried and, and my divorce wasn't for those reasons. What do I need to do? Well, you don't need to leave your spouse and go back to your former spouse and try to make that right. You don't need to, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. You, you don't do that. What you do is you go, you know, 
I, I see that I went against God's word. You confess it. You repent of it. And God is a gracious and merciful God. And God gives us fresh starts. Amen. Aren't you glad? I mean, I am. I'm glad. I've never been divorced. But let me tell you, I've done things that are more heinous. And I am so thankful for the grace and the mercy of God. But here's what I know. Hear me. Look at me. For you to experience grace, you've got to admit the failure. Did you hear me? To experience the grace, you have to admit the failure. And so if I want to come to God and I want him to work in my present relationship, even though I went against God initially, then then I need to admit that I went against God. And then God, once I admit it and confess it and repent and do what I can to make things right, God can then work in my relationship. So uh, the purpose of marriage, the permanence of marriage, but then third, and we, we got to hurry here, the priority of life in marriage. And I want to read a passage to you that's a little bit confusing. Beginning in verse 29, Paul says this. He says, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as they had none. What? Those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if they as it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of this world as if they were not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. What is Paul talking about? Is he telling us if we're married, we should now live like we're not married? No, that would go against everything he's already said, isn't it? What he is talking about here is priorities in life. Because all too often, we can live as believers with misplaced priorities. Let me give you an example. I love my wife. I'm not always the best husband. Sometimes I'm a terrible husband. I'm just going to be honest. So don't think I'm a great husband. But I got to tell you, I love my wife. I adore my wife. I put my wife on a pedestal. And because of that, I want you to hear me. Because of that, it's easy for me to live with my priorities out of order. I can put my wife on the throne when God says, wait a minute. I don't want anyone else on my throne. I want to be on the throne. And God says at those times, watch out because even good things can become bad things if you're not careful. And what Paul is telling us here is even in marriage, we need to make sure that our priorities in life are in order because understand the things of this world are passing away. I don't understand everything about the end times, but but as I read Scripture, marriage as we know it is not going to be in the end times. I mean, if it were, what do you do with that person who was married to someone they love? That person dies, they get remarried to someone else, they die, they get remarried to someone else, they die. All of them were godly people, they get up to heaven, now they got three people they love. Who are they going to shack up with? That's just not right, is it? You follow what I'm saying? I mean, the afterlife isn't like this life. I, I got to tell you, part of me wishes it was. I, I, I want my wife coming over to my mansion. I, I kind of kind of 
want that. I'm, I'm praying, Lord, at least put our mansion side by side so I can see her on a regular basis. You know, but, but what Paul's saying is this world as we know it is not what it's all about. There's something else that we're preparing for that's better. And if we get too caught up in life as we know it down here, we're not going to be prepared for what's out there. So for the married, understand the purpose, recognize the per- permanence, but then realize the priority of life even if you're married. Now to the singles, what do I want to say to you? Well, three things. And, and, and I want to apologize in advance because I understand that, that you're not listening fast enough. And, and so I'm going to not, not be able to go into detail on some of this, but I want you to hear this. This is important. If you're single, there are three things that you need to understand. First of all, you need to ask yourself, what is God's will for your life? If you're single, ask yourself, what is God's will for my life? Because here's what I know. In the church especially, many times we assume that God's will is for us to be married. Because it seems like in the church we elevate marriage above singleness, don't we? And so we assume that that everybody is supposed to be married. And then you have people come up to you and if you're single and, and say well-meaning things, but, but stupid things. Like, well, you haven't found a wife yet. I'm going to be praying that you find a good man. Well, how do you know they need a good man? You follow what I'm saying? So you need to ask yourself, if you're single, what is God's will for your life? And there are three things you need to understand as you try to work through this question. First of all, singleness is good. There's nothing wrong with being single. The Jewish mindset taught by the rabbis told the people that if you weren't married, something was wrong with you. And tragically... There were people that were taking that Jewish mindset into the Christian community. And yet Paul says, I want you to know, not only is there nothing wrong with being single, it's a good thing to be single. Listen to what he says in verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. Is that kind of clear? It's a good thing not to marry. Look at verse 8. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. Paul says, I'm unmarried. Being unmarried is a good thing. It's a good thing. And then look at verse 26. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for you to remain as you are. So listen, if you're single and you're content, you need to at least consider the possibility that God may want you to live single. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing. Singleness is good. But then Paul says singleness is a gift. Look at verses 7 and 9. Paul says, I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. But, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. You see, if it's God's plan... For you to be single, then I know two things about you. 
God will give you the ability to control your sexual desires. And God will give you contentment in your singleness. In other words, you won't be dreaming about getting married every single night. You won't be struggling daily with sexual temptation that seems impossible to overcome. If God's called you to singleness, he's going to give you the ability to control your desires and he's going to give you contentment in your singleness. Third thing, singleness results in happiness. Verse 40, Paul says, in my judgment, it is happy. She is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. Now he's talking about a single woman. He said, I want you to know that in the end, I think she'll be happier if she stays single. Wow, because what we're hearing from good, well-meaning people today is you're going to really be happy if you find a good man. But all too often, what we do is we move from the frying pan into the fire because we've bought into a bill of goods that was never God's plan for our life. So ask God, what is his will for your life? Not your friend's will, not your parents' will. Not some well-meaning Bible teacher's will. But what is God's will for your life? Second, recognize the troubles of married life. Verse 28 says, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you of this. Now understand, for you who think all your troubles are going to disappear when you get married. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. Oh, wait a second. I got to compose myself. No, no, you just get a whole new set of troubles. You really do. I mean, you had troubles when you were single. I know that. But when you get married, you're just going to have another pile of troubles. They're going to be different troubles. You say, how do I know this? I've been married for 31 years. I know. I've worked at it and I'm married to a wonderful woman and she's trouble. trouble. I mean, there's all kinds of troubles that you face. Here's what I know. When we're dating, we're on the prowl. Would you agree? We're on the prowl. We're hunting. Us guys, we're hunting. We the coon dog. And the woman is the coon. And we're ready to tree her and marry her. And when we're hunting, we're putting our best foot forward, aren't we? I mean, ladies, if you're saying, oh, no, they're not, then it's going to get worse when you get married because, yes, they are. I mean, if you don't like what you see right now, run! It's not going to get better. Because when we're dating, we hide our flaws. But when we're married, our flaws are exposed. I mean, you go to the pool when you're dating. And I mean, you're holding that belly in, guys. You know it. You know it. You're holding it in. You're, you're going around with a constant flex. 
that way. But then you get married and you relax. And your wife sees you and she goes, oh my goodness. I didn't know he had that. I mean, we have flaws. We, we have physical flaws. We have emotional flaws. We have, we have personality flaws. And we have in-laws. I, I mean, you, hear me. You get married and you have a whole nother set of troubles. And Paul tells us that. And so don't think, hear me, I'm, not, I'm, I'm joking some, but, but you need to understand that marriage isn't going to solve your troubles. You're just going to trade in some troubles for some other troubles. Life is filled with trouble. The question is, what do we do with the troubles we face? Here's the third thing if you're single. Give the Lord your undivided attention. Listen to what it says in verse 32 and follow. I would like you to be free from concern. He's speaking to singles. I would like for you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about, how the, the, uh, about the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but so that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul makes it clear that, that when you get married, you've got divided attention. And, and let me just say, if you're married and you don't have divided attention, then you don't have a good marriage. You hear me? When you get married, you're going to have to give attention to your spouse. When you have children, you're going to have to give attention to your children. You've got attention that you've got to give to work. And you're supposed to give your attention to the Lord. And you've got all of these attentions that you're trying to handle. And, and yet you're trying to live for the Lord. And, and Paul says that before you ever marry, you can give yourself and your undivided attention to him. Here, here's what I know. Too many singles, because we've bought into what the world says, we're trying desperately to get married when the Bible says, give the Lord your attention and then he'll take care of the stuff. Really, don't sweat it. Don't sweat it. Give him your attention. Trust him. And he'll take care of all this. Here's what I know. Some of the greatest Christians throughout history were single. David Brainerd, 17th century. He, he was a missionary to the Native Americans. Great missionary, great man of God. Bill Wallace was a doctor who lost his life in the communist uprising. He was a missionary in China, single. Lottie Moon, our our offering that we, we take up for foreign missions, for international missions, is named after her, Lottie Moon. 39 years, she was on the field, single. Bertha Smith, another missionary to China, lived up in the upper part of, North Car of, of South Carolina, gave her life to the mission field, single. Here's what I know. As singles, they were able to give their undivided attention to the Lord. Now, is everyone called to live like that? No. 
Everyone is not called to live that way. But what we need to do is ask ourselves, what is God calling us to? Now, let me go back to what I said at the beginning. Here's what we need to recognize that Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7. Whether we're married or whether we're single, we need to be content. Because our happiness and our happily ever after is not going to be dependent upon a specific spouse, but submission to the Savior. So here's the key. Whether I'm married or whether I'm single, I need to serve the Lord in whatever situation I'm in. If I'm married, I need to use my marriage to serve God. If I'm single, I need to use my singleness to serve God. Now, here's what I want us to do. Because I know we have married people here. We've got single people here. Here's what I want us to do. In just a moment, we're going to pray. But before we do, I want to ask some questions. And then we're going to bow our head. And I want you to raise your hand with heads bowed, with eyes closed in just a moment. I'm going to ask these questions right now. You think them through. If you're here and, and you're not a Christian and you're struggling in your marriage, let me let you know that if you're going to ever have a marriage that's going to really sizzle, you need Christ at the center of it. So, so my question for you is, are you willing to give your life for Christ? Are you willing to surrender your life to the one who created you, the one who died to save you, the one who knows best how to make you happy? That's my question for you. For you who are married and you're struggling in your marriage, I want to ask you this. Are you willing to do what you need to do to make your marriage right? Don't look at your spouse. Don't begin to think through in your mind what your spouse needs to do. Are you willing to do what you need to do? And if you are, then in a moment I want you to raise your hand. Next, if you're single, are you willing to trust God? Are you willing to trust God in what he says about sexual purity? Are you willing to trust God in his timing, in his way to bring you the spouse that he wants in your life, if that's his will for your life? And are you willing, at the very least, to pray and ask God, God, what is your perfect will for me? Are you willing to do that? And then finally, for you younger people, you teenagers, you need to pray two things. You need to pray, one, God, make me the young person I need to be so I will be prepared to be the spouse you want me to be if that's your calling for my life. But God, if your calling is for me to be single, make that abundantly clear as well. I want you to bow your head. I want you to close your eyes. And I'm going to go through those four things. And on each of them, if God's speaking to your heart, I want you to raise your hand. If you're here and, and you need to give your life to Jesus... Because you know that your marriage will never be what it needs to be. You will never be able to be the single you need to be apart from giving your life to Jesus. If you're here, you've never given your life to Jesus and you need to. Would you raise your hand right now?
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you raised your hand and you meant that, here's what I want you to pray. Dear God, today I'm humbling myself before you. I'm tired of living life my way. Forgive me. I'm tired of playing God. Forgive me. I really do believe you love me. I believe you created me. I believe you died for my sins. You rose from the grave. I'm giving my life to you. From this moment on, I want to live for you. Thank you for hearing me. Thank you for saving me. Now, if you're here and you're married and you say, Rocky, I am willing today to begin to work, to be the spouse I need to be in my marriage because I want to be a spouse that honors God. Would you raise your hand right now? Just raise your hand. Thank you. You can put your hands down. If you raise your hand, I want you to pray this prayer. Dear God, I thank you for my spouse. And today, I am making a commitment to be the spouse I need to be. Give me love for them. Patience with them. Determination in my marriage. I pray that I will honor you as I love them. If you're here and you're single, and you're saying, Rocky, I really do want God's perfect will for my life. I want to stay sexually pure. I, I want to be married if that's God's will. I, I want to stay single if that's God's will. I want to be in the center of God's will. And you're willing to pray a prayer saying that to him. I want you to raise your hand right now. Amen. I want you to pray this prayer with me then. Dear God, I thank you that you made me. You created me. And you've got a plan for me. I don't know what that plan is completely. But I want to follow it. Today, I commit to sexual purity. Today, I'm asking you to reveal your perfect will to me. If your desire is for me to be married, give me the ability to be the man or woman you need me to be. If your desire is for me to be a single, Give me contentment and peace and joy in my singleness. All I want is your perfect will. Now, if you're here and you're a teenager and you're willing to pray today, God, I want your will in my life. If it's to be married, prepare my spouse. If it's to be single, let me know that and keep me pure. If you're willing to pray that prayer... As a teenager, would you raise your hand right now, teenagers? Amen. Okay, let's pray this prayer. Lord God, I know that you've got a plan for me. I don't know what that plan is. Lord, if your plan is for me to be married, I pray even now that you will prepare my spouse and prepare me 
to be the spouse you want me to be. Lord, if you want me to be single, give me joy and peace and contentment in that. All I want is your perfect will. Amen.